And as has already been clearly said this morning, I also want to echo uh, how much I appreciate your prayers uh, for me as I continue to travel behind the Iron Curtain to, the, to communist China and more recently since 9-11 to Iraq and Afghanistan. Your prayers continue to be incredibly powerful in my life. And I know that they've sustained me in many situations. Some dangers have been self-evident. Others, uh, situations I've been probably totally oblivious to. I clearly remember, remember a suicide bomber in Baghdad. 36, 38 people were killed, but almost 200 injured. Uh, we had driven by that location just five minutes earlier, and Terry Law, myself, and several others of our team were heading into the green zone, and the actual concussion shook our vehicle and uh, we'd just gone by there five minutes earlier. I remember being stoned in Afghanistan several times, being in a bad car wreck, coming out of Baghdad, and in all of those situations, the Lord protected us. But more than that, uh, I appreciate your prayers for the people that we work with and uh, the fruit that uh, is continuing to be produced in those nations, that they might be truly established in the faith. This morning... I also especially would like to honor all of our missionaries to realize that uh, our total budget last year for missions was about 33% of all the dollars given for for all the work here at TCF. 33% of it went directly into missions. And last year was a bit of an an unusual year in that we had uh, uh, a special trip to Kenya that, that brought that number up. But On an average, we are giving about 25% of our budget to missions every year. Also, uh, just an astounding uh, figure is that well over 10% of our membership are serving as full-time missionaries in uh, the nations that we uh, target on the missions map in the back. And I... uh, would venture to add that if we would include all of the children of the missionaries, that that number would uh, be uh, approaching close to 20% of our constituency of, uh, of TCF membership and those that we support overseas. 20% of them are serving in full-time missions. As you'll note uh, in what I say in just a, a, a little while, a very large percentage of the missionary force in the world, about 85%, reach out in their missions work to nominal Christians. Among our current missionaries, over half are working among the least reached in the difficult-to-access nations, many in the 1040 window or very close to the 1040 window. Let me just quickly highlight some of these missionaries, the Shupaks, reaching out to Muslim Chechens, the Harrisons who will be sharing uh, during this week, training Muslims in West Africa to go into the 1040 window and and certainly reaching out to Muslims in uh, their part of Africa, the Hannas in Egypt, the uh, Diggins in Kyrgyzstan, the Ligans for years worked in Egypt and Lebanon right in the heart of the Islamic world and now continue to reach out to many who have come from Saudi Arabia and from the Middle East to be trained here in Tulsa. The foxes are in the Horn of Africa. The Niles, very close to the 1040 window in Japan, 
And then our missionary doctor is the places, the Larrabees and the Rudds in China, a nation that has the second most unreached people groups in the entire world. In fact, over the years, TCF has sent full-time missionaries to at least 38 nations of the world. And at last count, I think uh, the official nations that have flags at the United Nations is somewhere around 207 or so, perhaps a little bit more than that. I've thought often about how did I end up being involved full-time in missions work, and I have to go back uh, to the home that I grew up in. I grew up in a home where we were in church every Sunday morning and evening and most Wednesdays, and uh, I grew up in the day when uh, missions was almost romanticized. It was, it was an incredible thing to talk about that you actually personally knew a missionary in India or in Africa or, or somewhere in the Amazon, and we, we heard of missionaries in, in our home uh, on a regular basis. We would have missionaries from these various countries, and uh, my, my enduring vision uh, of my father is uh, him at his uh, Remington typewriter, Emmanuel, banging out 10 or 12 missionary letters every Saturday morning. He would do a carbon copy. Some of you don't even know what a carbon copy is, but he would do a carbon copy of those letters, and and I think almost all those letters, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of them, have, uh, have been kept uh, in the uh, archives of the Finnish Pentecostal Churches of North America. I remember about 15 minutes till 12, and we were up in Waukegan, Illinois, just north of Chicago, we would rush to the uh, main post office on Genesee Street in uh, Waukegan to get in uh, to mail out these uh, letters that had been just minted that morning. My dad had banged them out on the typewriter with the missionary support that was going to our various missionaries. I remember many missionary conferences, and I remember uh, especially going to the Great People's Church in Toronto, Canada, to hear Oswald J. Smith, the great missionary statesman, who uh, said so accurately, no man has the right to hear the gospel twice until every man has heard it once. And then he said, if you cannot go yourself, you must send a substitute. Oswald Smith made it clear to us that this great missionary enterprise was all of our responsibility, whether we personally went to the field or not. We needed to be involved at some level. You might say I had a a good chance of becoming involved in missions from that kind of a background, and I'm so thankful uh, and uh, grateful to the Lord for that and for my parents and for my mother who has uh, been to so many mission fields with my dad and continues to pray for me and Ruthie who continues to pray for me. By the way, did I say happy Valentine's Day to everyone? I did. I wanted to be sure to say that. (laughs) You know, um, I love what a uh, young Chinese Christian said uh, about the Lord. She said, uh, I know God does not have any favorites, and I know I'm one of them. You know, I, I, I'd like to say that about each of you and of myself as well. I know, I know God doesn't have any favorites, but you are his favorites. I remember so clearly uh, a message that Catherine Kuhlman preached at uh, Ruthie's uh, graduation from ORU years ago when, when she talked about being the apple of the Lord's eye. And I, I want you to know for sure that if you would have been the only people 
that were ever born, God the Father would have given his son to die for your sins that you might have eternal life. You are his favorites. And uh, we are so blessed and so privileged. I believe I've been called to missions and to this great missionary enterprise. And I won't go into much more of that detail except the Lord has, uh, has led me uh, and I'm so grateful for that. Hear the words of the great apostle Paul as he's getting ready to pass on the baton to Timothy. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and that not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Then he says, do your best to come to me quickly. When you come, bring the cloak that I left uh, with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Do your best to get here before winter. Let's especially focus on that last phrase this morning. Do your best to get here before winter. Come before winter. And as we've already heard this morning, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The Apostle Paul was nearing the end of his life, and he wanted Timothy, his son in the faith, to be with him for these last days. I'm sure he wanted to impart to Timothy the reservoir of knowledge he had and to pray over him and to pass on his mantle to Timothy to carry on the great pioneering work throughout Europe and uh, Asia Minor that Paul had pioneered in his lifetime. And I believe even as Paul said, come before winter, there are voices that are calling us today from uh, the darkest parts of the world, from the 1040 window, come before winter. Come while there still is day. Come while there still is opportunity. Come tell us a message of hope while we still have an opportunity to respond and to believe. I believe we're living in a momentous, momentous moment in time. The battle lines are being defined for the last epic battle, uh, battles before the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. What an incredible privilege we have to be involved, each of us, in this great missionary enterprise, the greatest endeavor in the history of our world. Do you realize that the church is the greatest company ever in the world? There are outposts all across and in even the darkest places, secret outposts sometimes, and uh, more 
churches are being planted every day, hour by hour. There are many encouraging signs that the gospel is penetrating even to the darkest places of the world. The world of Islam is being impacted a lot more than uh, is perhaps commonly known. I've had the privilege of being in Indonesia a number of times, the largest Islamic nation in the world, well over 200 million people living there. Officially, Indonesia is about 8% Christian, but if you talk with believers there, they will tell you the number is more like 20 to 25%. That's how powerful the move of God is in Indonesia. India, soon to be the most populous nation in the world, officially is perhaps 3 4% Christian. The Christians there will tell you quickly, we don't want to debate with the government. There's no point in that, but really the numbers are 10 to 12%. And there is great revival in many parts of India today. Iran is responding daily to the gospel, especially through television and radio ministry. We have some friends in those ministries who tell us that even in a very recent uh, statistical study, 875,000 Iranians have uh, publicly or, or have prayed to receive Christ and have prayed over the telephone or have indicated in a very clear way that they have received Christ as Lord in their lives. Reza Safa, right from, here from Tulsa, ministers daily, as I understand it, into uh, Iran by television, and uh, their people are taking calls continually. There's been a great revival among the Berbers of North Africa in the country of Algeria in the last few years. I've heard as many as 40 to 50,000 have come to Christ around the Atlas Mountains in Algeria. And there's a great uh, bit of history that I actually read uh, from the last of the giants uh, concerning Algeria. Raymond Lull was generally considered the first missionary to the Muslims in his book, The Tree of Life, wrote that the Islamic strongholds are best conquered by love and prayers and the pouring out of tears and blood. He himself was stoned to death in June of 1315 in Algeria. Now, this revival that I just described in the uh, region around the Atlas Mountains among the Kabali Berbers is happening exactly in the location where Raymond Lull preached the beautiful message of Christ in 1315. So here again, we see that the uh, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I'd like for us to uh, quickly uh, look at a glimpse of what the picture looks like at this present time. But before I do that, I want to give you a very important definition. I mentioned that there are some 200 nations that fly a flag in the United Nations. But in this presentation that we're just going to look at, which is by Joshua Project and which Bill has helped me a lot with to personalize, actually, you'll see some pictures of people that you recognize uh, in this presentation that uh, have sat or sit in these seats uh, but the, the important definition uh, I want us to note is uh, the definition of a people group. For evangelization purposes, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread 
as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. Let me read that one more time. Very important definition. A people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. And you'll note that there are many more people groups in the world very quickly than there are nations that fly a flag at the United Nations. But let's go now to this uh, presentation looking at the big picture of world evangelization and where we stand today. Sometimes we get so close to something that we don't see the forest for the trees, and I'm believing that this glimpse will help us to get the bigger picture. What is this? Uh, We can see that it's also important to see the big picture. I'd like to look at Jesus' last words, the status of the Great Commission, the gospel to the ends of the earth, dramatic recent progress, and the challenges that remain uh, of the unfinished task. Jesus commanded, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And here again, the word ethne is used describing a people group, a group with the largest, uh, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread or a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. That is the definition that we need to look at. And the results as disciples are made of all nations will be that God's glory will fill the earth and there will be worship from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. Why is making disciples of the nations so important? It is directly linked to the return of Jesus. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. There will be worshipers from every people group before his throne and purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What is the status of a church for every people? How many people groups are there? Do you recognize some of these pictures? You see Dr. Hannah there in Egypt on the left. A people group is sometimes a group that actually goes into several different countries. A people group is counted for each country it is in. This is the list most often referred to as the peoples of the world. There are 16,300 people groups in the world today. How many people groups are considered unreached or least reached? And we're using a criteria of less than 2% evangelical and less than 5% adherence to Christianity. The best current estimate of unreached, least reached ethnic people groups is 6,600. The countries with the most unreached peoples, India has 2,500 total people groups, 
and 2,190 still unreached. China, 560 people groups, 427 unreached. And so we go down to Nepal, 332 people groups, 309 still unreached. What is the strategy that the church can use to make disciples of all the nations? We're to go into all the world to preach the gospel. And since we do not know who is a part of God's family, the church ought to strive to give every person the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Is this a realistic goal to present the gospel to every person on the earth? Let's take uh, a really fun example, the vision of Coca-Cola a can of Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. You know, I've traveled in some 60 countries, and I can testify that in most of those countries, I've either had some Coca-Cola myself or at least seen it advertised. They have incredible advertising the the, the world round. And uh, you can get Coca-Cola bottles or cans with local Arabic or Chinese or uh, whatever uh, the, the language of that particular country is uh, identifying this wonderful drink, and Coca-Cola is being delivered across the deserts, through the jungles, and uh, selling really well. If we look at the uh, entire earth as Coke drinkers, and that all true followers of Christ would at least have a can of Coke every day, uh, 10% uh, are, are true Coke fans. They are truly committed followers of Christ. 20% are nominal. They might uh, say they're Christians, uh, they're ethnic Christians, they uh, are proud of it, they probably will come to church maybe once or twice a year perhaps. Then 40% are non-cola drinkers. They've heard about Coca-Cola, but they've, they've never, never responded to the gospel. And then 30% never heard of Coca-Cola at all. They, they are virtually... Uh, uh, they virtually have had no exposure to the gospel at all. What are some of the, the ways being used to reach the gospel? First, Bible translation. Do you notice this uh, interesting uh, point right after uh, 1500? What happened after that to cause such a dramatic rise? Anybody want to take a guess? Gutenberg. Technology is a good thing. So uh, that's, that's what happened there, and that's a, that's a fantastic, encouraging picture. The New Testament has been translated in, into the mother tongue of over 82% of the world's population. However, the remaining approximately 18% will require over 2,500 new translations. Dave, could you bring me that water there? What is the most viewed film in the history of the world? I can already hear you talking about the Jesus film. It has been shown in approximately 6.225 billion viewings or hearings. It is available in languages known by over 90% of the world's population. Preaching radio broadcasting is another way to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's estimated that Christian radio broadcasts cover at least 90% of the world's population. So where do we stand uh, in this great enterprise to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? There are 16,300 people groups, 6,600 still unreached. There are 10% that 
that we can say are true believers, uh, followers of Christ, 20% that are nominal, 40% have heard but have not responded, and then 30% uh, have had no exposure at all. Here's the question to ask. Is Christianity stagnant? Is it declining or growing? This is such an encouraging graph here. Evangelicals are growing two times faster than Islam and three times faster than Buddhism and Hinduism at a rate of 4.7% annual growth. There's been a dramatic explosion of the non-Western church, especially in what's known as the two-thirds world. True Christianity has grown by more than 300 million believers in the past 10 years. About 10 million of these are from North America and Europe. 290 million are from developing countries like Nigeria, Brazil, India, and China. There's been unprecedented growth in the two-thirds world. Cambodia, where BASIC went on a wonderful mission just two years ago. In 1990, there were 10 tiny groups. 1997, 300 fellowships. 2005, 1,000 churches. Uh, a new church is being planted there every week. Uh, there's an estimate of 100,000 believers today in Cambodia. Philippines is a remarkable country. I remember being in the Philippines in 1974. At that time, there were approximately 3,000 churches there. Now, 55,000 churches. And by 2010, the Filipinos expect to be sending out 100,000 contract workers into the 1040 window in the next 15 years as tent-making missionaries, the most of any country in the world. And I want to personally testify that in, in many of the countries, especially all across Asia, uh, that I've traveled in. I have met Filipinos in restaurants, in stores. They might be the entertainment for the nightclub. If you watch them carefully, you realize there's something very unique about them. There's the beauty of Christ in their countenances. I remember being in Dubai this past summer. Uh, we were buying a tripod uh, on our uh, journey on into uh, Iraq. I guess it was in, uh, we were going to Afghanistan at that time. And uh, in, in this really, really uh, outlandishly beautiful uh, uh, mall, nothing like what we have here in Tulsa. And uh, there was a Filipino uh, young man that sold the tripod to us. And when the, uh, what I recognized was a, probably a Muslim a worker, which is a little bit farther away, I said, brother, are you, are you a believer? And he said, yes, I am. And I knew he was one of this uh, great army of Filipinos that are all over, especially the 1040 window, as contract workers, as tent-making missionaries. The China story we've heard so many times. 1948, less than 1 million believers. In 2008, upwards to 125 million believers, most of the growth in the last 30 years. There are more followers of Jesus in China than in North America over 12,000 new Chinese believers every day, and there's a great need for pastoral training. I'm happy to report that one of the things you saw briefly on the piece on World Compassion, we're, we're continuing to develop training materials to train Chinese 
to be missionaries, particularly to the 1040 window and to the stands following the Silk Road all the way back to Jerusalem. A uh, wonderful development as, we're, as, as far as new initiatives. The Koreans expect to send 30,000 missionaries into the 1040 window in the next 15 to 20 years. I've met Korean missionaries, especially in Afghanistan, also I believe in Iraq. They often come with a large team and uh, are doing a powerful, powerful work. Uh, they have uh, a military that is made up uh, of, of many, many evangelical believers. I've met some of the uh, Korean soldiers in Erbil. Probably close to a third, maybe even a half of them are committed Christians. Uh, remember riding with a, a soldier in his Jeep. He's got his Bible right, right there on the dash. And when we talked to the uh, commanding general, a very uh, alive, on-fire believer, he told us about the, the uh, army church in Seoul where soldiers by the tens of thousands receive Christ before they're sent uh, overseas on missions. So a, a fantastic work they're doing. The Chinese are being trained even today to be missionaries, not only to the 500-some unreached peoples in their own nation, but across uh, the Silk Road back to Jerusalem. The Filipinos, they already talked about contract workers already reaching much of that part of the world. Nigerians uh, are raising a great missionary army. I know the Harrisons are a part of that training of, of that army. Uh, Latin Americans are much more well-suited, uh, particularly for North Africa, than American missionaries. They almost have the same color skin. They're used to harsher living conditions. And, uh, in fact, Dan Covington and uh, the training he does is also involved in training that force uh, for the 1040 window. And even uh, an organization called Jews for Jesus is reaching right into Israel. My brother-in-law actually is one of the leaders of Jews for Jesus, and wonderful things are happening. Even the natural branches are being grafted uh, back into the vine, into the root, as Romans 11 tells us. What are the challenges of this task uh, that still remains? First, a great spiritual challenge. Satan does not give up ground without a battle. More Christians have been martyred in the 20th century than in the past, previous 19. There are 5.5 billion lost people in the world. Viewing five per second, it would take us 35 years to see all of the lost. The remaining people group challenge are in the areas that are most difficult to penetrate, remote, harsh climates, difficult access, nomadic peoples, much illiteracy, no scripture in their language, unwritten language, terminology confused, cultural barriers, et cetera, et cetera. Political and national challenges, countries with the highest unreached tend to be the most closed to Christianity. North Korea uh, is the, uh, according to Open Doors, the number one uh, top persecuting nation of Christians. I've heard that there may be as many as 100,000 underground believers in North Korea. Government severely represses all religious activity. 
uh, physical and spiritual star- starvation of the people. There's a, a great imbalance in missionary distribution. Over 87% of all cross-cultural foreign missionaries minister among nominal Christian peoples. And that's what I especially wanted us to, to grasp this morning, that that is not true among TCF missionaries. Well over 50% of our missionaries are in the difficult-to-access and often very much in the 1040 window areas ministering the gospel. For every million unreached Muslims, there are less than three missionaries. There is a great imbalance in missions finances. Here's a question. For every dollar of Christian giving to all causes, how much goes to financing pioneer church planning among unreached peoples? Anybody want to take a guess on that? How much? Answer, half a penny. And again, uh, we need to rejoice that God has allowed us to pour in a larger percentage. In fact, almost half of our support is supporting work in the least reached and the difficult-to-access areas. We're doing all this that we might realize this goal, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The time is going quickly, and I'm actually having to get on a plane pretty quickly here as well, but let me tell you one amazing story. It comes from Yemen, where the Harrison's kids have been working In the year 1950, in Yemen, there were 4.3 million people. And this is actually a comparison between Russia and Yemen. In Russia, which had suffered some of the most extreme forms of forced secularization under the communists, they had about 103 million people in 1950. Despite the devastation of wars and revolution, the population was still young and growing in Russia. And by the year 2000, Russia was 145 million people. But there's been a tremendous uh, change in fertility rates in Russia. And, uh, in fact, all across Europe. And uh, actually, from Iceland to Russia, west of the Urals, there is a recorded fertility rate of only 1.37, which is not enough to sustain a population. We need to have at least two, or just slightly over two, to sustain a level. I'll quickly rush through the story. By 2000, Yemen, who's had a population fertility rate of 7.6 over the previous 50 years, has now grown to 18.3 million people. Median level United Nations forecast suggests that even with fertility rates increasing by 50% in Russia, which I might add quite unlikely, over the next 50 years, its population will be about 150, or, or sorry, 104 million in 2050. They are a declining population, a loss of 40 million people, and it will be an elderly population. The same forecast suggests that even if Yemen's 7.6 rate would fall 50% to 3.3 by 2050, it will be about the same size as Russia, 
102 million people and overwhelmingly young. And right now, of course, about 99% Muslim. I've checked the most recent numbers. We're, of course, at 2010. I said Russia was 145 million in 2000. They are down now to 140 million. Whereas Yemen was at 18.3 million in 2000. They are now at 23,822, almost 24 million. So uh, I believe that's another reason why we need to hear the cry, come before winter. The uh, Muslim population is not multiplying by conversion, but by biological reproduction. General Sada speaks at length about this and how much of Europe is very quickly becoming uh, Muslim, in, particularly in the big cities of Germany, France, uh, uh, the Netherlands, many places like that. We have an opportunity to reach the Muslim nations in the 1040 window as we continue to do the work before us. Let me finish with one final story. I remember years ago, Ruthie and I were ministering in Poland. We were preaching in the Catholic cathedrals, and uh, we would often stay in uh, convents and monasteries. In this particular uh, uh, incident, we had been staying at a convent for about a week, and we'd have to walk through a forest every night to get to the convent because the road didn't go there. There was just a path that we could walk on, or we couldn't drive the bus because the the, uh, the path was too, too narrow. And so we would come home at night after doing a concert in a, in a local cathedral or a, or a church. Uh, often uh, hundreds responded to the gospel. We would be exhausted. We'd get off our bus, turn off the lights, and it would be absolute darkness. It was so dark that you could absolutely, you could feel like you could cut it with a knife. The only way we could even tell that the team was with us as we would keep talking to each other. And for about 15 minutes, we'd walk through this gravel road with the canopy of the forest over us and uh, no light coming through, no starlight, no moonlight, nothing. And then about 12 minutes into the walk, we could start seeing the lights of the convent. And they shone so brilliantly as we came through that darkness. And I want you to know that... uh, even in the 1040 window and in the Islamic world, there are many beautiful lights that are burning. The message of the gospel is reaching into that world. I'm getting on a plane to fly to Kurdistan this afternoon. Just this past year, 232 Muslims uh, were baptized in water. And uh, what a wonderful thing that is to be baptized in water. But when you come out of a Muslim culture and you are baptized publicly in front of anyone who wants to see, you are saying, I'm saying uh, goodbye and dying to a, a uh, one millennium of history. My father's, my grandfather is going back 1,300 years, have known only Islam, and I am leaving that darkness and following after the light of Christ. I remember being in a private conversation. It's not really for public repeating, but Nechavan Barzani, the former prime minister, 
of Kurdistan, met with General Saada, Terry Law, myself a number of times, and he said, I would rather that a Kurd become a Christian than he become a radical Islamic. He said, radical Islam is the greatest danger in our part of the world. I hope to be going to uh, a town called Khalidza on this trip, very near the Iranian border. We have a brother Kojin there who's uh, a church planter. He's been persecuted. His church, or his church and his home is, is often stoned. And he has told us that we can right now get hundreds of thousands of Bibles into Iran and uh, to feed that revival, those hundreds of thousands that have received Christ. There's a, there's a tremendous need. We're, we're already taking our Story of Jesus booklets, have been for the past year and a half, on the backs of donkeys out of west or eastern uh, Iraq into Iran. Patrick Johnstone says in his book, the church is bigger than you think. God has a plan for you regarding the great missionary enterprise. There is a U-shaped hole in his kingdom that only you can fit. Every one of us has a role to play. I know that God doesn't have any favorites, but I know that we are some of them. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. God bless you all.